Christmas is over. What a... <laughs> it can be great and it can be fantastic drag. And I wonder how many marriages are right now on tenterhooks because of Christmas. Uh, no, it's a curious thing. At uh, any time there's a, there's a holiday, man, <laughs> there's trouble in the wind. Trouble in the wind. And uh, tonight's Saturday show is not really essentially about Christmas. And yet again, it is essentially about Christmas. As so many things are, uh, it's yin and yang, you know? Plus and minus. Rasmates. Hit it. <laughs> what the hell? Keep that up there. Uh, I may want to use that later on. That's great. Very thank you, Harry. That's very that's all lovely. Now let's hear the next one. I have not heard this before. Let's put it on. Let's see what it does. Oh, that's official. Jingle bells with the sound of a cash register. Okay, I'm going to do it tonight. Uh, at least uh, beginning last September, I started to be barrage with letters, or at least I used to uh, got a couple of them a week, from people asking me to read this short story at this particular time of the year, Christmas, the Christmas period. And the short story that they were asking about is a story that uh, I wrote for Playboy in 1967, and it appeared in the Christmas issue of Playboy, in that year, and also uh, the following month was awarded the Playboy's Humor Writing Award of the Year. Every year, you know, they give an award for what they consider the best humor writing to appear in their magazine in the preceding year, and this particular story won it for 1967, and uh, the story itself, uh, I'll have to edit it a bit, not because uh, of radio, but because uh, there are certain things which are really visual for the page and uh, don't really fit uh, reading, and at the same time because of time limitations, too. That uh, this story, which uh, also, I believe this story also... No, I don't think so, no. No, this this story has... Well, it's been reprinted, anthologized in various other journals, but... uh, in with other short story writers and other people. And it's appeared several times since. In fact, I think this is one of the most anthologized stories that I personally am responsible for authoring. And the title of the story is The Return of the Smiling 
wimpy doll. I repeat, the return of the smiling wimpy doll. And it's subtitled, Wherein Popeye's Pal Gangs Up with Jack Armstrong, Buck Rogers, Dr. Christian, Tom X, Captain Midnight, Mickey Mouse, Harold Teen, Melvin Purvis, and Grumpy the Dwarf for a traumatic Christmas visitation. Are you ready? All right. We begin. Congratulations upon buying such a fine product. You have choosed wisely upon procuring our very fine patent patent pen devices. The guarantee which accompanies herein is unquestionably good for one year or less. If fuse is not twisted, note base of green color is not easily found to be crackable. To operate correctly, merely plug into standard USAC two-pronged electrics, 110 volts. Immediately, your deluxe Yule Agogo tuneful musical revolving puncture-proof tabletop model aluminum Christmas tree should begin function. Deluxe model 12A is capable of being folds. If excessive care is observed, this provides storage. I reread the directions, which must contain somewhere a clue to the technical trouble I was experiencing with my sparkling little Japanese-made aluminum beauty, a triumph of modern science over the tuneless, non-reusable, old-fashioned Christmas tree of yesteryear. The only trouble was the damn thing squatted there, dark, mute, unrevolving in the middle of my Wither Street picture window overlooking my beloved wasteland of Manhattan. Even though I had taken every precaution to make sure it was plugged into the correct electrics, maybe my Yule or Gogo is polarized, I thought, with my usual technical know-how on which I pride myself as an XGI. Dropping to my knees, I crawled laboriously behind my Danish folding swing-a-ding culturama, inching forward toward the only electrical outlet that my entire high-rent three-and-a-half-room apartment supported. I plunged my hand into the giant rat's nest of three-way, five-way, nine-way extensions and plugs by dint of which I managed to squeeze out enough electricity from my one outlet to run my entire life. From somewhere in the distance, deep in some murky air shaft, came the faint strains of recorded Christmas music. I jiggled the plugs, reversed the green one from my Eulagogo, and crabbed backward from behind the couch. Nothing. Returning to the tree, I picked it up and examined it from all sides in the gray light that filtered in from what passes for a winter sun in the big city. There were no knobs, no switches, no mechanistic protuberances. Aha! Again, my brilliant technical mind leaped in excitement as I spotted on the underside of the Christmas green polyethylene base what appeared to be the head of an embedded fuse. Quickly, I scanned through the thinner-than-tissue-paper sheet of instructions. Quote, a single phrase leaped out at me. Quote, if fuse is not twisted. Do they mean it? Do they mean to twist the fuse or not to twist the fuse? Since my Eulagogo wasn't playing carols and suffusing my apartment with a festive aura of soft Christmas lighting, the way the ad said it would, I deduced that they must mean to twist the fuse. 
Squinting closely at the base, I observed that the fuse was recessed well below the surface. It would require more than my fingernails to do the job. In a frenzy of creativity, I rushed out into my kitchen, where I keep my meager supply of tools, fished out my dime store pliers, and returned to the fray. As I grasped the base firmly in one hand, the pliers in the other chomped solidly into the head of the fuse. I gave it a smooth and clean twist. For a single instant, I felt the Christmas tree stir under my grasp, its tiny red, yellow, blue, and green lights flaring brightly. The high, thin notes of, I am dreaming of a white Christmas, bouncing off the ceiling. And then a dull, roaring sensation boomed up into my arm, crashed into my shoulder. For a moment, I stood frozen, and then I toppled through a cloud of billowing smoke, striking my head smartly against the arm of my burnt orange Naugahyde barca lounger, and lay for a full minute stunned, during which I had the clear impression of being on a skiing trip in the Alps, which is rather odd since I am resolutely anti-skiing. Tentatively, my mind gradually groped back into focus. I knew the worst. I had just voided another guarantee. I crawled to my feet, my silken dressing, dressing gown still smoldering slightly, and staggered over to the couch. I sat down heavily, flicking my wrists, attempting to restore some circulation. It was a little early in the morning for shock therapy, I reflected. Christmas decorations lay scattered about me. Absent-mindedly, I examined a plastic bag containing two sprigs of neoprene mistletoe. Its red Christmassy lettering said, Plasto Kiss, splashed across the gay bagging. Well, at least you don't have to plug this stuff in, I mused. Little did I realize that this fiasco was but a prelude to an electrifying pre-Christmas trauma that would set the tone for the entire disastrous Yuletide Fortnight. The doorbell rang. My mind, slowed by its unexpected jolt of Con Ed juice, at first did not respond. It rang again. Finally, I heard a disembodied voice that I dimly recognized as mine call out, What do you want? From behind the door, I heard the surly, guttural tones of the doorman. A package! A package. Instantly, the cobwebs fled. There is nothing that brings the roses to the cheeks of a man quicker than to announce he's receiving a package. Leaping to my feet, I lurched forward, barking my shins against my free-form coffee table, and limped to the door, oblivious of the thin, crimson trail of blood I was leaving behind me. Life, the complete serial. Sweat poured down my brow as I read the green-black letters printed on the huge, lumpy, battered cardboard carton as I struggled to drag it over the sill of my apartment door. Slowly, I inched the monster burden over my $700-a-yard mocha-shaded wall-to-wall carpeting and into the living room, my silk dressing gown sopping wet with honest perspiration. Even my monogram drooped. Painfully, I toppled the hulking mass end upward, hearing from inside a muffled clinking and clattering, a tinkling, rolling, sifting, grating melange of sound from within the battered carton. Even as I eased myself down into my magnificent alligator-skin Pakistani sling chair to rub my shattered shin, which was now beginning to throb, the box continued to emit muted sounds, noises like sand filtering down through the mess of broken Christmas tree ornaments. From deep inside came the low whir 
of a spring suddenly uncoiling. It stopped, ticked twice, and was silent. Somehow that spring and the sound it made were vaguely familiar. And then began a faint, derisive quacking, as if some demented duck calling to its lascivious mate. Instinctively, I struck out at the carton with my clenched fist. The duck quacked once again, and the giant carton lapsed into an ominous silence. Only the sound of distant sirens keeping the citizenry at bay drifted in from the outside world. I knew that damned duck. I knew it, which is not an easy fact to accept before lunch. Awkwardly, I struggled out of my chair and stood looking down at my prize. For the first time, I noticed that there was an envelope taped to the top. It was addressed to me, handwritten, in a familiar script. Quote, Merry Christmas. I was cleaning out the basement the other day, and I came across all kinds of junk you had when you were little. I figured rather than throw it out, I'd send it on to you. A lot of it is still good, and you might want to play with it, especially the kangaroo spring shoes that Aunt Min gave you for Christmas. Love, Mom. Kangaroo spring shoes. My God. With an involuntary groan, I plumped down on my rickety camel saddle seat and read the letter again, finally letting it fall to the floor between my feet. Seven tons of kid effluvia. What a master stroke of sadistic Christmas gift-giving. Already my apartment was loaded to the gunnels with grown-up mementos. For example, my complete library of first edition peanuts, paperbacks. My matched set of uh, souvenir pillows from 37 army camps west of the Mississippi. My matchless, nationally known collection of rare swizzle sticks, all personally earned. My life was already overflowing, and now this. I thought briefly of throwing the whole damn mess down the air shaft. 37 tons of kid junk. And then, from deep inside the box came another sound, a faint honking. A honking sound as if some ancient fliver caught in a long-forgotten traffic jam. It stopped. Maybe it was the duck. Maybe the horn. Maybe Christmas itself. But I found myself rising slowly from my seat, picking up my pair of shears and standing over the vast carton. From some remote apartment on the 12th floor came the unmistakable beat of that new smash Christmas hit, The King Wenceslas Rock by the Bullwhip Four. Taking a deep breath, I plunged the shears into the top of the box. There was no turning back. As I sawed away, I began to be conscious of a rising twinge of apprehension. What was in this box? After all, as a kid, I'd had a lot of things in my possession at one time or another that I would not want my mother to know about. Furthermore, it came as a somewhat nasty shock that this stuff, this junk, was still in existence. I thought my kiddom had disappeared. Finally, the shears chewed through the last strand of bailing wire, and the top of the battered receptacle stood ready for the final assault. Unflinchingly, I grasped the flaps and ripped. Instantly, an odd, indefinable odor rose from the muddled moil. Musty, basementy, a slight touch of rust. I think I detected even a bit of residual ancient sweat mixed with other scents, so subtle and ephemeral as to be unclassifiable. 
inside the cover, my mother had crumpled large sections of the editorial page and one ad columns from an old copy of the Chicago Tribune that she had picked up, probably from a pile of old newspapers in the basement. The faded headline read, B-24 Squadron, Hit Sicily, and Daylight Raid. Yes, I could smell that musty smell of the basement. It was worse than I thought. A rich, moldering, compost heap lay like some archaeological treasure trove before me. For a fleeting instant, I felt like King Tut would feel if he came back and somebody insisted that he take a tour through the Egyptian section of the Museum of Natural History, talking all his junk in the glass case. Gingerly, I reached down into this sorry mess of pottage. I must admit with a certain amount of uneasiness, because there was no telling what was in there. And I've always been worried about, well getting bitten by things. Warily? You know, you never can tell what's in there. Something's liable to bite you down in that pile of junk. Warily, I grasp a round, a round furry thing that barely topped the surface of the sea of trivia, and slowly I began to pull from the rubble a battered, fuzzy, brownish, truncated form, which as I began, as it began to emerge from the wreckage, I recognized with growing horror. Great Scott! Oh, my God, no. There, staring insidiously up at me, hanging from my fingers by one ear, was something from so far gone in my dim past that at first I thought this was another nasty trick of my mother's. But no, it was mine. I don't know how to say this, but there, right in my apartment in midtown Manhattan, surrounded by my paperbacks of Kafka, Nietzsche, and Rona Jaffe was, please do not think too harshly of me, my teddy bear. Yes, I confess, there was a period in my life when I would no sooner have gone to bed without Brownie than I would have thought of saying bad things about Santa Claus. There he was, old Brownie looking up at me with black button eyes hanging loose, one of them hanging out, the other one peering right through me with the steadfast, baleful glare of one who knew me when and knew me all too well in the days when I was nothing. And clinging to him, so help me, was the faint but unmistakable aroma of what is euphemistically called baby herps. You notice it with a baby herps? I could smell it on a teddy bear faint, vague remains of ancient pablum, petrified oatmeal, insinuating touches of Fletcher's castoria. I held Brownie out at arm's length before me. He dangled, revolving slowly in the ambient air, immutable, imperishable, eternally cuddly, wanting only to comfort me in the dark hours of slumber. <laughs> Discreetly, I turned his good eye away from me, since he seemed to be trying to tell me something. I laid him down on the sofa and walked over to the window to stare for a long, gloomy moment out over the teeming city. If the word ever got out in certain circles that my pad housed a teddy bear named Brownie, it would do me no good at all. The mere fact that I'd ever owned a teddy bear would have been enough in some quarters. Bracing myself with a quick drink of bourbon, I returned to the box. Taking a little more care this time to guard against undue shock, I slowly withdrew from the entanglement, a flat-stuffed, cut-out figure made of colored oilcloth, 
that stood approximately 12 inches high. For a long moment, this strange apparition and I confronted each other without a spark of recognition. What is it? Dusty, a bit faded. A little round oilcloth man wearing a derby and sporting a ragged mustache, a pot belly. He smiled enigmatically over my shoulder toward the kitchen. Somehow, he seemed familiar, and yet... And then, from some far-off rubbish heap of memory, I heard a voice, a cracked, comical voice on the radio, asking, beseeching, demanding, wheedling, whispering, for more hamburgers. Hamburgers. My God! Hooray! It's my wimpy doll! Wimpy! It will surprise many of historians to learn that at one point in American history there was actually a Popeye radio program. Popeye, Olive, Castor Oil, Ham Gravy, Wimpy, the whole crowd came into the living room every day. They offered you a choice of Wimpy doll, a Popeye doll, an Olive Oil doll, or an Alice de Goon doll if you ate enough soup and send in the labels. We were a canned soup family, so there was no problem collecting labels. But I was probably the only kid in the United States who didn't order a Popeye doll. I went for Wimpy, a down-at-the-heels moocher, who lived only to stuff his gut with hamburgers. A cadger. I identified with him, and I'll never forget the day that my Wimpy doll arrived. He immediately outranked Brownie, and for one hectic era, I was one of the very few Americans who went to bed every night with a guy wearing a derby and smoking a cigar. I must admit... I was glad to see the old freeloader again. There he sat there. His oilcloth was a little seedy. The stuffing was edging out of his frock coat, but somehow that was as it should be for Wimpy. Carefully, I laid him alongside his old rival, Brownie, and I returned to the hustings. A thin leatherette strap caught my eye. And carefully, so as not to break any of these precious artifacts, I dragged forth a strange, dusty, dangling black object covered with snaps and buckles and exuding the heady aroma of musty sheepskin. Faint silver letters. I could read them through the basement patina of grime. Dipping a finger in my bourbon, I carefully wiped off the grease and dirt. B, U. One other was missing. K. Another one missing. O, G. Bless my buttons. As Dr. Hewer used to say, my genuine Buck Rogers space helmet for intergalactic flight with sheepskin lining. <laughs> oh, don't tell me. My old lady's thrown them out. I, I hurriedly scrabbled through the tangled mess with a great sigh of relief. I pulled out my precious space goggles. Wow. My space goggles, their scratched, yellowed plastic lenses were curling at the edges, but I reverently pulled them down over my head and snapped them into place, at first carefully shaking out three dead cockroaches and a retired moth. I tugged at the ear flaps of my space helmet, squeezing it down on my cranium, marveling at how it, sh it had shrunk. Finally, I snapped the chin strap shut, and I rushed into my bedroom to admire myself in the mirror. My Buck Rogers space helmet, as I'd done many times in the past. Yes, there I was, that same intrepid traveler to the 25th century, the fearless, flinty-eyed protector of the butaceous Wilma, Old Dr. Hewer's trusted friend stared back at me. There was one thing missing. Instantly, I rushed back to the box, and sure enough, there it was. A little rusty, a little pockmarked, but still excitingly dangerous-looking. Made of imitation blue steel 
It was my faithful Flash Gordon Zap gun. <laughs> the same gun that had destroyed Ming the Merciless with its deadly disintegrator rays. I leveled it at my Black Forest Persian water clock. I pulled the trigger. The achingly familiar sound of the deadly rays with which I had disintegrated and gunned down my kid brother Schwartz, Flick, Bruner, all of them thousands of times over, echoed weakly in the room. The scratchy sheepskin tickled my ears the way it had done so often in the past. This helmet and I had been through hell together, not to mention giant snowstorms through which I had burrowed trusty goggles protecting my eyes as I pretended that I was on a space flight to Venus. Buck Rogers' space rockets trapped to my back on my way to catch the vile Black Barney who was now in league with Zog, evil master of the swamp planet, to subjugate the entire known universe. universe. Buck Rogers in the 25th 25th century. century. Yeah, which uh, reminds me. Don't ask me why. This is W.O.R. New York. You know, word association. I knew that somewhere in that pile of kid junk there must be the Buck Rogers spaceship that I had gotten from the Buck Rogers radio show. It was made of lead and attached to a long string with which you were supposed to tie it to a chandelier and then given the proper shove, the spaceship would twirl around the room making a high whistling sound, which it did. Until one night, my old man got it in the eye in the dark and ripped it down, tearing down the chandelier, too, at the same time. And was there a hell of a scene after that one? Reverently, I removed my helmet and goggles, laid aside my zap gun, and reached once again into the grab bag of my own life. After fumbling around for a moment or two, I felt a round, metallic object, which at first I thought was my beloved Mickey Mouse watch, a beautiful timepiece, whose dapper yellow gloves occasionally pointed a more or less the correct time. But it wasn't corroded, its gilt finish peeling. It was the size of a watch, but beneath its glass top, I could see the number 227.4. I scraped off some of the grime, and I read the embossed inscription. Official Jack Armstrong Wheaties Pedometer. From out of the wind tunnel of my mind, a commanding voice dramatically intoned. Fellas and gals, gals, with the official official Jack Armstrong Armstrong pedometer, you can tell just how far you walk every day, how far it is to school, how many miles it is, how many miles you walk at the scout hike. You'll never be lost if you wear your Jack Armstrong official pedometer at all times. For just one Wheaties box top and 25 cents, mail to Jack Armstrong and care of this station. Yes, I had sent in the box top. This was an important find. I examined the pedometer closely, ticking the counter lever with my thumb. It still worked. It still made that telltale click at each revolution. I remembered great herds of kids wearing corduroy knickers, drifting schoolward through the boondocks, clicking as they went. The whole neighborhood sounded like an enormous flock of crickets, day and night, as kids measured how far it was to everywhere. I could see that funny look on Miss Shields' face, as one day in fourth grade, I got up on direct orders to go to the blackboard to demonstrate my grasp of the multiplication table. What's that clicking? asked Miss Shields. Uh, I'm measuring how far it is from my seat to the board. I said, give me that, is all she said as she stuck her eighth pedometer of the day in her bottom drawer.
Pulling up my pajamas, I strapped the pedometer to my right knee, got up and carefully paced the distance to my bar, returned to my seat and took a reading. Hasty calculations revealed that six martinis would result in traveling one-twelfth of a mile. <laughs> Happy as a clam, I dug back into the box and unsuspectingly unearthed a shadowy horror out of the past that caused me to rock back in my chair in a wave of terror. Oh, my God! The evidence still exists! The crime had lain dormant in the back of my mind for years. A crime that I had done, gnawing at my conscience like some dry rot in the foundations of an evil haunted house. Furtively, I examined my fine shielding at my hands that if by any remote chance there were onlookers, they would not see the incriminating cellophane envelope that I held, that old sick nausea, that fear of discovery, of the unmasking of my evil... The exposure of my rottenness hit me again. I am not proud of what I had done, but I was young and unformed. Youth is always immoral. But if I had to do it over again, I know what I would do. I'd do the right thing. I held it up to the light, and there they were, within the envelope, yellow and green, light blue, triangular shaped, the collection of, quote, rare, exotic, hard-to-find foreign stamps, which in my headstrong moment of criminality I had once sent away for on approval. On approval meant that you sent them your dime after you got the stamps. I do not have to tell you that I not only never sent the dime, I never intended to. <laughs> I remember the letter that came from Kansas City a month later from the stamp company threatening my father with jail and me with a criminal record that would last throughout my life if I didn't ante up. I almost passed out when I read that letter, and after carefully burning it in the furnace, I decided I'd better pay. But I didn't. I never heard from him again, although for years I've had fleeting impressions of men in dark coats and Homburgs shadowing me wherever I went. And here they were, the evidence. I tucked the stamp collection back down under the middle sofa cushion where it would not be seen, and I moodily sipped my drink. Maybe that was the first misstep. I thought, maybe I had paid for those stamps. I could have marched through life clear-eyed, clean, honest, straight to the White House. I'll bet Richard Nixon always paid for his stamps. <laughs> On second thought, I don't know. It was with an effort that I returned to my investigation, fishing up next a collection of thin sheets of paper bound together with a crusty old rubber band that broke in my hand immediately, spilling the crinkly slips out over the floor. Cockamamies! I had, I had unearthed some unused gems from the precious collection that I'd bought over the years at old man Pulaski's candy store. He really hated those times when we'd come in to buy these tissue paper tattoos that dissolved in water. You know the kind you put on the back of your hand? I can hear him now. Old Pulaski, all right, you kids. I ain't got no time for fooling around. Either you want pictures, you don't. Schwartz, Flick, Kissel, and I, peering through his glass case, would finally, after great soul-searching, decide on which magnificent artistic view of Old Faithful we wanted. I picked up from the floor a cockamamie showing a Marine in green helmet sticking a bayonet into the thorax of a bright yellow Japanese soldier. A great fountain of crimson blood squirted out over the M1, 
The Japanese eyes were slanting evilly, his mouth contorted as he hurled an oriental obscenity at the square-jawed marine. The caption on my cockamamie read, Gung-ho! It was a beautiful picture. I remember the day I bought it. My mother wouldn't let me put it on. Here was my chance. I licked the ancient decal, tasting the old familiar glue flavor that I knew would not leave my mouth for a month and meticulously smoothed the soggy paper onto the back of my left hand, blowing on it expertly as I had done so often in the past to dry it off. Now for the delicate part, with the skill of a surgeon, I slowly peeled off the moist backing. And there, in four beautiful garish colors on my left hand, was as magnificent a representation as I had ever seen of a Japanese corporal going to his just rewards. On the back of my hand, I wondered what the gang at the office would say to me now. (laughs) I knew that I would be the envy of all eyes and that it would especially impress the typing pool. I held my hand out admiringly, knowing that if I didn't wash my hands, I could keep that beautiful marine intact for at least a month. The cockamamie had hardly dried when I found myself holding in my hand as sinister an object as I'd ever owned, an object with a history of the sort that is rarely whispered in mixed company that could and did make strong men weep. It was a penknife, but a penknife with a difference, shaped like a lady's leg, no less. A lady's leg wearing a chromium-plated high-heeled shoe. (laughs) The mother of pearl calf bulged enticingly and tapered off just above the knee. It carried two blades, one for ordinary cutting and the other for snipping off the blunt ends of long black cigars. As I inspected it, this knife, the vision of an early but decisive humiliation, sprang out from the knife directly into my consciousness. My knees crackling warningly as I arose, I carried the grizzled weapon to the window, holding it at the proper angle as I had done in the past. I looked for the silver shield embedded in the mother-of-pearl calf. Ah, yes, there it was. It was still there. I raised the knife to eye level, peering deep into the tiny hole in the shield, upward at the watery sun. There she was, my old paramour, who had contributed to many a sweaty evening and feverish dream. Her grass skirt provocatively parted at mid-thigh. <laughs> her roguish, gypsy eyes glowing as brightly as ever. Her ample and unbelievably bare bazooms in full, magnificent, flesh-colored bloom. She! She was the lady who had caused my disgrace and eventual court-martial from the Moose Patrol Troop 41, Boy Scouts of America. For months I had whined and conjoled, trying to pry out of my parents the price of an official Boy Scout knife. No one in our troop had a complete uniform. What I wanted was a knife. And one day, my Uncle Carl, who had spent the entire depression just playing his banjo and going in and out of pool rooms, hearing of my burning desire to own a knife, fulfilled my wish in spades one day. You want a knife? He asked. Yeah, I said. How you like this knife? He fished it out of his pocket. The lady. Wow, is all I said. Wait till they see that at the scout troop. Old Uncle Carl said, that's better than any old Boy Scout knife. He wasn't kidding. I held it in my hand for the first time, 
He bent over and whispered into my ear. I just thought it was a knife. His beery breath enveloping me with the suds and the warmth. He says, look into that hole on the side. Hold it up to the light. Don't tell your old lady. That was the beginning. The next week, that lady with the bazooms was an instant smash hit at Troop 41's meeting. Two weeks later, I was drummed out in disgrace when Mr. Gordon, our scoutmaster, got wind of what the Moose Patrol was sitting around and cackling about instead of tying knots. <sighs> well, for the next 15 minutes, I spent happily working the plunger on my Captain Midnight Ovaltine shake-up mug, which I immediately saw would be handy in whipping up a batch of Gibsons. I next blew several high-piercing blasts from my Captain Midnight three-way mystic dog whistle, calling 17 mutts to howl as far as two blocks away and bark frantically. And then unexpectedly, I came across a fortune in unrealized assets. Here for years, I had been wealthy and didn't know it. I discovered seven, that's right, seven, unredeemed good-humor lucky sticks. Each one good for one free good-humor bar any time I cared to cash in. I looked at them. I couldn't figure how I let them go by the boards when I was a kid. How come I didn't spend them? And it slowly came back to me. The summer that I had hoarded these seven lucky sticks for my old age. I'd read a story in a comic book about an old man who didn't save when he was a kid and how he's reduced to begging on street corners. The moral was, save for a rainy day. It scared me so much that I began to lay away uncashed pop bottles, lucky sticks, and slugs for free games on the pinball machine, saving for that rainy day. Vestiges of chocolate syrup remained on the valuable premiums. I wondered briefly whether I could cash the whole lot in with Emil, the bartender at the existentialist Dumont, for an Irish coffee, maybe. Seven free sticks. Oh, yes, with moist eyes, I riffled through my prized collection of Fleer's bubblegum cards, illustrating great moments in American history. There was good old Washington still crossing the Delaware. Paul Revere galloping over the countryside on a green horse. Abraham Lincoln making a speech, dog-eared, thumbed, well-worn, and faithful. My collection was one of the world's most valuable of its kind, completely intact. As I glanced at them, my jaw hinges began to ache, dully from countless pounds of obscenely pink bubble gum that I had pulverized to get these damn cards. One card in particular told a story. It showed Robert Fulton waving a flag from the deck of a steamship. That card had cost me four fillings in one chomp of the gum. The sickening crunch of a mouthful of silver as the bubble gum did its deadly work is a feeling you do not forget soon, let me tell you. What an afternoon. I sat there and I sucked moodily on my long-lost Dr. Christian bubble pipe. An angry wind laden with sooty ice crystals banged briefly at the windows of my apartment. It was getting colder. Sadly, I turned to the dusty magic mountain of illusion. Lost and gone, grieved, I sat and read. And then by evil design, Sinister design. I came across a mint-conditioned flat-white can of white cloverine brand salve. Another relic of my ill-fated career as a boy salesman. 
<laughs> the ad in the comic book had read, Kids, you may be the one to win this beautiful Shetland Pony. He will be awarded, along with thousands of other valuable prizes, in winners to our big sweepstakes. Cloverine brand salve just distributed to your neighbors. They'll be excited when you arrive. It pictured a smiling, freckle-faced, red-headed kid holding the reins of a brown and white Shetland. I clipped the coupon. God knows what horror would have descended on the household if I had won a pony. You don't do much with a pony on the south side of Chicago. Shortly thereafter, an enormous case of white cloverine brand salve arrived, and another fantastic trial by fire began. Once again, I was tested and found wanting. After 17 giant suppertime fights, and after which I'd sold only three cans of salve, one to my mother, one to Mrs. Kissel, and one to me. My father really blew his cork, wrapped the whole thing up, and sent it back to the Cloverine people, hollering as he yelled at the, <laughs> when he set this thing off, Sue, go ahead! Let them sue me! They can't get blood out of a rock! Now look, kid, if you ever send in another damn coupon, you will not sit down for a month! No more coupons, really? That ended that, technically. But ever since that time, I've been a little nervous when they mentioned Willie Loman. The death of a salesman. Next out of that awful box came my battered, rainbow-tinted, official tournament model, Duncan Yo-Yo. My Duncan official tournament yo-yo. Its groove, its paint worn down after endless hours of walking the dog. All those great trick. My Melvin Purvis G-Man badge. I searched quickly and I discovered there it was. My Melvin Purvis G-Man escape-proof handcuffs, just like the one John Dillinger had slipped out of so many times. I knew that somewhere down in the tangled mass must be my Melvin Purvis G-Man book of instructions on how to stop crime. It was. I glanced at the first page entitled, How to Tell a Crook. Quote, G-Men have found that crooks cannot look an honest man in the eye. Always look at the eye of suspects for the telltale evidence. I remember the day I tried that on Grover Dill. What are you looking at? Was all he said before he hit me in the mouth. I guess Melvin Purvis never had a deal with anybody like Grover Dill. As you have no doubt deducted, there was a period in my life when I was an implacable foe of crime. Every week I listened intently as Warden Laws of Sing Sing intoned on the radio. Attention! Attention, all citizens be on the lookout for Harry Rottenstone, known as Harry the Fink, wanted for armed robbery in Oklahoma. He is five feet eight and one half inches tall, usually of mean disposition, a diagonal scar running from left ear to jaw, steel blue eyes, tattoo on right forearm of red heart inscribed, Mother, this man is armed and presumed dangerous. Notify the police. Do not attempt to take him single-handedly. Notify your local law enforcement office. This is Warden E. Laws of Sing Sing saying, Good night, Crime Stoppers. Bum, 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 bum. The FBI in peace and war. Every day after that, I coolly surveyed all passing strangers for telltale scars. Down to the left ear. Eventually, it had to happen. It did. I spotted a thick-set steel worker getting on a bus, and ten minutes later reported him to the big cop who helped the kids across the street in front of the Warring G. Harding School, which I was attending at the time. 
the feeling of stark righteousness and bravery that I experienced at that moment, coupled with the natural fear of cops, is still fresh in my mind. Officer, I just saw Harry to Fink. He got in that inland steel bus. Harry who? Harry to Fink. I read about him on the radio. He robbed Oklahoma. Oh, for God's sakes, you're the ninth kid today who's seen Harry to Fink. Last week it was Iron Lip Louie. They ought to make listening to that damn Sing Sing program against the law. I'll Harry to Fink you. Get in school, you're late, kid. That was the end of my crime-spotting career. Yes, I knew that underneath this pile of junk must be my FBI and Peace and War official fingerprint kit, for which I'd sent in two lava soap wrappers. You needed lava soap to get that crummy, sticky black ink off your fingers after you got the kit. (laughs) I remember running the rubber roller loaded with ink right up the back of my kid brother's neck. A dismal incident that could well have been one of the contributing factors that led directly to World War II. A flash of red caught my eye. And, oh no, another trophy of long-lost afternoons confronted me. A battered bright red plastic fireman's hat bearing the motto Ed Wynn Texaco Fire Chief for one feverish season this fire chief hat was an absolute must for every right thinking kid Ed Wynn came on the radio with that big old siren with the fire bells banging wearing a hat exactly like this beauty they gave him away at the Texaco station to anybody who could afford gas Gingerly, I picked it up and placed it atop my head to see if it gave me that old feeling of pizzazz. My fire chief hat. It was kind of great to see it again. I arose, walked to the window, and for reasons that I still can't understand, I raised the glass and stuck my head out, high out over the roaring canyon of Manhattan, my home. The sun bore down weakly. As I said to myself, you are absolutely the only guy at this instant in all of New York, the only one who is wearing an Ed Wynn fire chief hat. You are totally unique. The only guy in town right now. Hooray! At that instant, a gust of frigid wind whipped around a corner. I felt the fire chief hat lift slightly and zap! It was gone. In an instant, I stared as it turned down over and over. I could see it drifting down towards the traffic jam. A tiny red, uproarious Edwin horse laugh volplaning down to the sidewalk. My Edwin hat. In a panic, I rushed to the kitchen. I pressed the button on the phone that connected me with the doorman far below. His voice filled it up through the hum. Yeah. My fire chief hat just fell out of the window. You're what? My, uh... I suddenly realized what I was saying is a nutty thing. My, uh, my fire chief hat. Fire chief hat? What? Out the window? What do you mean? What are you talking about? It's my Edwin fire chief hat. Ed who, huh? Edwin, when, Edwin, I was shouting. Hey, don't you live on the third floor? No, Edwin, when, he doesn't live on the third floor. It's Edwin, the fire chief hat. You, you got a fire? What's the matter? Is a fire up there? What's going on? Look, my fire chief hat is down on the sidewalk. Instantly, I hung up. I could hear him humming into the phone as I ran to the window. 
And sure enough, down below, I could see the midget figure of my doorman coming out of the door, looking around. And, oh, my God, a kid, a tiny kid's got my hat on his head. He's picked it up down on the street. Without thinking, I shouted down 16 floors. Hey, kid, give me back my hat, you think? Instantly, dozens of passersby peered up looking to see if there was another suicide here in town. I saw the doorman tangle with the struggling kid far below. A few shadowy faces appeared at apartment houses across the, across the avenue. Stealthily, I pulled down the window and I hid behind my drapes. Oh, my God, what am I doing? There's a kid down below in a fight with a doorman over my Edwin fire chief hat. Skulking back to the sofa, my Jack Armstrong pedometer clicking on my knee, my cockamamie on my left hand glowing brightly, I sat down and tried to get a grip on myself. What do I want with an Edwin fire chief hat? I'm a grown-up man. What is this? I sat for a minute wondering what was going on. And then all of a sudden my doorbell rang. He's got it! I rushed to the door, flinging it open. Al, the Ukrainian doorman, stood in the hallway holding on my Edwin fire chief hat. You got it! Great, great! That kid put up a fight. He extended his paw with an odd, strange look on his face. I had forgotten that I had a cockamamie of a dead Jap on my head and I was wearing, I was wearing my helmet with the goggles. I had forgotten that I was wearing my pedometer I had forgotten I also was carrying around my wimpy doll. He gave me a long, funny look and went back to the elevator. I sat down and took a big drink of bourbon. I knew that my reputation was made in the building now. Within five minutes, it would be all over the building. That nut on the 16th floor is wearing a Edwin Fire Chief hat. You know what he also had on? Oh, God, I could hardly think of it. I sat for a long moment in the gathering gloom. Somewhere outside I could hear a stereo record player going full blast up and down the air shaft. That new hit tune, Jesus Don't Love Me Anymore, But I Got You, Baby. The current spiritual smash sung to the nose of Bob Dylan, twanging away. I squatted there for a long time in the gathering gloom, surrounded amid the dusty, dusty, ancient, rotting effluvia of my youth. I suddenly noticed the huddled form of my little green aluminum Japanese Christmas tree. Yes, on impulse, I picked up my Popeye spinach eater's lucky piece. Maybe it'd work. I rubbed it. My God, it's working. Magically, the thin but unmistakable notes of I'm dreaming of a white Christmas with a somehow Japanese twang to it filled the room. And the tiny tree began to pirouette. Its hidden mechanisms working flawlessly. It's miniature, red, and green, blue, and yellow candles. <laughs> Sending out a dazzling rainbow of soft Christmas cheer. Yeah. My wimpy doll sat with his derby on sideways. Seemed to be squinting at me. 
I look down at my Popeye spinach eater's lucky piece. All it took was a little rubbing with the thumb. And the Christmas tree had magically started to work. Off in the distance, the carols thrummed. Yes, Popeye had saved the day again. The End. And that was entitled The Case of the Smiling Wimpy Doll. A short story that appeared in Playboy in 1967. And the winner that year of the 1967 Humor Playboy Writing Award. Popeye had saved the day again. Okay, did Christmas work out? How would you like to get a gift of your own evil? Your own failures, your own hopes and your own dreams wrapped up in a crushed cardboard box and delivered with torn newspaper headlines of your moment of feckless, wild, romantic flashing in the sun. The case of the smiling wimpy doll and the Christmas of evil memory. the news.